This week, Neiman announces TSA with majority of lenders and bondholders. PetSmart term lenders turn down proposed amendment. Windstream equity holders to seek official committee status. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in New York. Hello and welcome to the REARC podcast where we each week bring you the latest top developments in high yield and distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Karen Long reporting from REARC's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelton. Later, Mark Fisher sits down with senior distressed debt analyst Nick Williams and senior covenant analyst Peter Washkowitz to discuss credits that experienced excessive volatility as a result of fourth quarter results. Companies discussed include J. Crew, EP Energy, Jones Energy, and Legacy Reserves. It's Sunday, March 31st. Neiman Marcus on Monday announced that it has entered into a Transaction Support Agreement, or TSA, with lenders representing 57% of the company's term loan and 61% of the company's unsecured notes. The TSA proposes extending the company's debt maturities as previously disclosed in a March 1 term sheet. Conditions for the recapitalization transactions include participation by holders of at least 95% of the outstanding principal amount of both the loan and the notes. However, these thresholds may be lowered by the company, quote, in its sole discretion. The liens of non-participating term lenders would also be, quote, subordinated below those of all other lien holders. Key terms of the TSA include the issuance of $550 million of new second lien notes backstopped by certain bondholders, and Neiman's sponsored and unsecureds would exchange into a new third lien note with a certain first lien collateral and $250 million of My Teresa preferred equity. The company said that it would formally launch the transaction in April. This week on Tuesday, sources told REARG that Wilmington Trust, as administrative agent to the PetSmart term loan, said in a letter that a majority of term loan principal had organized to block the amendment proposed by the company on Monday. PetSmart had asked term loan holders to consent to an amendment that would end the ongoing litigation between PetSmart and Wilmington Trust with respect to transfer of 36.5% of Chewy to the parent and an unrestricted subsidiary last year, according to sources. In exchange, the company would, quote, tighten certain restrictive covenants and provide certain improved economic terms to consenting lenders, according to documents outlining the amendment that were reviewed by REORG. PetSmart had offered consenting term loan holders a 50 basis point amendment fee, a 50 basis point coupon boost, and a $250 million paydown over the next 12 months, as well as a restriction on any additional transfer of Chewy equity, sources said. Also, in PetSmart on Thursday, Judge Denise Cote granted, in part, PetSmart and Argos Holdings' motion for a protective order with respect to three of 13 sets of documents the plaintiffs sought to withhold as protected by attorney-client and work-product privileges. The documents she denied a protective order included a presentation regarding something called, quote, Operation Buddy. Sources also told Riart on Tuesday that an ad hoc group of windstream equity holders was forming around Brown Rudnick with an intent to seek official equity committee status this coming week. The ad hoc group is focused on three potential pockets of value, the sources said. The first potential pocket of value would be related to director and officer, or DNO, claims relating to potential breaches of fiduciary duty and unjust enrichment. A second pocket of potential value the committee could pursue 
would relate to fraudulent transfer claims in an attempt to push equity, quote, into the money by driving lease concessions from Unity. A third potential source of value an equity committee might pursue would stem from voiding Windstream's second lien notes due 2024 and 2025, which were issued subsequently to Aurelius's September 22, 2017 notice of default letter, the sources said. Meanwhile, last Friday, the ISDA Determinations Committee published the final terms for the Windstream Services LLC credit default swaps auction. The Determinations Committee also posted a final list of deliverable obligations for the CDS auction on its website earlier this month. The final auction items were posted after the Determinations Committee considered and rejected a March 11th challenge from a market participant that targeted both, first, certain 6th and 3 notes issued in November 2017 in Windstream's note exchange, the quote, new notes, as well as, second, quote, original 6th and 3 notes held by Aurelius Capital Master Limited. On Thursday, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority published a revised draft of the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan dated March 27th. The draft is a revised version of the March 10th draft fiscal plan that was subject to a March 15th notice of violation from the PROMESA Oversight Board, with the board stating that the March 10th draft required, quote, significant revisions. The latest draft plan projects a pre-debt service cash flow surplus of $11.686 billion from fiscal 2019 through fiscal 2024 after the impact of fiscal measures and structural reforms. This estimate is about 5.3% below the $12.343 billion six-year cash flow surplus projected in the March 10th draft. The difference reflects, among other things, a 25% reduction in the estimated impact of fiscal measures and structural reforms. The Oversight Board also held a public hearing on Thursday, discussing the implementation of fiscal plan measures by the Puerto Rico Department of Public Safety. Also in Puerto Rico, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit on Tuesday affirmed Judge Laura Taylor Swain's opinion dismissing the first, third, and fourth claims of the amended complaint filed by Assured Guarantee, National Public Finance Guarantee Corporation, and Financial Guarantee Insurance Company. In its opinion, the First Circuit concluded that sections of the Bankruptcy Code, quote, permit but do not require continued payment during the pendency of the bankruptcy proceedings. The ruling is notable because of its potential impact on payments related to special revenue bonds in the other Puerto Rico Title III cases and potentially in the larger context of Chapter 9 cases. The First Circuit also on Tuesday issued an opinion affirming Judge Swain's January ruling, dismissing the ad hoc group of Go Bondholders clawback and special property tax revenue related lawsuit against the PROMESA Oversight Board and the Commonwealth. Other top red stories of the week were... Blackhawk Mining engages Centerview Kirkland as amortization payment looms, crossholders working with Davis Polk. Governor Newsom, quote, troubled to learn that new PG&E board slate proposed to include, quote, hedge fund financiers, out-of-state executives. Mission Coal announces $264.7 million successful bid for Oak Grove, Maple Eagle assets by newly formed entity held by Murray Energy Javelin, debtors to file amended plan by March 30th. As always, here's Jim Holloway in Houston with The Week Ahead. 
Well, good morning, folks. Greetings from a gray sky Houston. It is a new quarter, a new month, and a new day on Monday, April 1st. And what better way to kick it off than with a coupon payment? Acosta has one due on the seven and three quarters of 2022. Hornbeck, $10 million payment due on its 2020 notes. And Jones Energy, $13.8 million due on its six and three quarters unsecureds of 2022. They did not make last month's coupon on their secured notes, so we shall see about this one. There's also the expiration of a senior notes exchange offer from Chesapeake. And in the courthouse, we have up there in Dallas, a hearing in PHI, of course, based in Lafayette, Louisiana, and related to Puerto Rico, an ERS bondholder stay relief hearing. And in PG&E, prior to the California Utility Complex, there's a shareholder proposal deadline. Tuesday, April 2nd, a stay relief hearing in the Marbo McKenzie matter. That's a very interesting one. And there is an order to show cause also in PG&E. Wednesday, April 3rd, confirmation and sale hearing for Mission Coal. Thursday, April 4th, an omnibus hearing in checkout. And Friday, April 5th, well, not going on on Friday, April 5th, it seems. What did happen, though, on April 5th, back in the pages of history, was back in 1772, some Dutch explorers landed on Easter Island, way out there in the Pacific, with all those mysterious monoliths that have intrigued historians, theosophists, and metal musicians down to our present day. That's all from me, everybody, and back to y'all in New York. Thank you, Jim. And now, here are Mark, Nick, and Peter to discuss volatile credits following fourth quarter results. Thank you, Connor. So we are back again, uh, another quarter, uh, another year, with um, volatile credits from the uh, the recent quarter, or in this case, um, the recent year end, uh, as it was uh, as we wrapped up fourth quarter uh, just very recently. So there's a few names that um, have surprised us uh, or at least um, might have surprised the market a little bit um, with some concerns about liquidity, some concerns about uh, financials. Uh, in this segment, we want to focus on what companies said in their uh, quarterly results. So this is going to be a few recent companies that uh, have either pr- uh, reported some fairly uh, negative uh, results or said some things which might result in in some upcoming restructurings. Uh, Names we're going to talk about, uh, four of them, three of them in the energy space, one in retail, and uh, they are uh, in the retail space, J.Crew. We've got in the energy space, EP Energy, Legacy Reserves, and Jones Energy. And also here with me to help uh, tell the story, I have Nick Williams, who is a distressed uh, debt senior analyst and also a team leader in the uh, distressed debt space, and uh, also Peter Washkowitz, senior covenant analyst. Uh, so first one, we wanted to talk about um, J. Crew, um, and this definitely falls in the category of just when you thought it was safe to go back in uh, the water, something else happened. Um, so why don't you, Nick, uh, tell us what it is, uh, what is that happened? How are fourth quarter results? Fourth quarter results were not great, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, the company reported adjusted EBITDA for the fourth quarter of negative $31.9 million, uh, down from positive $63 million uh, in the fourth quarter of the prior year. Uh, and I think kind of the uh, most telling number is, is that gross margin dropped from 37% last in the fourth quarter of last year to 22% in the fourth quarter of 2018. 
So the decrease was driven uh, in large part by a $39 million charge for, quote, expected losses on the disposition of excise, excess merchandise inventories, end quote. Uh, the company said that at the end of 2018, it owned substantial excess inventories, which it was going to have to work through. Um, so basically, uh, and reading through the lines a little bit here, the company and then CEO Jim Brett launched a number of new initiatives in 2018, including in particular a number of new J.Crew sub-brands. Uh, as lister, listeners may be aware, uh, the company and Jim Brett, the CEO, went their separate ways back in November, saying that they failed to bridge their beliefs on how to continue to evolve all aspects of the company. Not, not a great uh, look, I think it would be fair to say. And, uh, you know, I, I think what we saw in, in these results were, you know, particularly uh, on the call were referenced that the, the strategic initiatives around these sub brands, you know, these, these J Crew kind of new initiatives, new strategies, new brands within that product line really did not work. Um, so that I would say is kind of the big takeaway from the quarter. Uh, on the brighter side of things, uh, Madewell still kind of had a, a, these these issues didn't seem to affect J. Crew's Madewell uh, business, uh, which reported strong year-over-year growth, and, and the company also highlighted growth in its wholesale segment, uh, saying in particular that its relationship with Nordstrom is going very well. Great. So it's you know it's one of these where. I guess it's a wait and see approach. See how see how they recover. It's interesting. You you know you mentioned the charge, which was greater than the negative EBITDA. So that charge, which I suppose is non cash in the in the quarter, drove EBITDA negative. But it, uh, this is something that we've covered a lot here in the retail space. Is that in retail you're you're predicting what people will buy, and um, if you get it wrong you obviously have to take out take those charges you have to clear out inventory and uh, the question is did they get it wrong one time or will they be getting it wrong uh, in future periods yeah I think that's that's right so so inventory as of the end of the year was 390 million uh, up from 292 million uh, as of the end of the prior year. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, overall, uh, you know, for the entire business, J. Crew and Madewell, uh, revenue was up year over year. Uh, if you exclude this charge, uh, I think gross margin declined by uh, 260 basis points um, rather than the kind of 14% decline that, that the headline numbers show. So it, it's not. Uh, you know, I, I think we did see the term loan down, trade, excuse me, trade down uh, after results were released into kind of the mid-60s, you know, low to mid-60s. Um, and certainly, as I think we said, these, these are not good, good, good results, but, but we have to wait and see. Great. And, and to put that in perspective, that's, um, there's 1.8 billion, I see, of, um, of total debt, 1.4 billion of which is... Um, is secured and a little less than the 1.4 billion of that is is in the term loan. That's right. So so uh, 1.4 billion of, of ABL and term loan or 1.44, and uh, uh, many people will of course be familiar with the 340 million of, of IPCO notes, um, which are also secured uh, specifically by the J Crew IP. Got it. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. 
Great. So now let's now move over to the energy names. Uh, first one up is Legacy Reserves, Permian producer. The company uh, made some uh, some news this quarter because they reported a 33% drop in EBITDA to uh, $56 million from the prior year. The drop was based on a number of things, lower oil prices, slightly lower production, and higher costs. So, you know, that, that trifecta. Um, the company prior to, uh, to reporting actually said that they had hired um, advisors on March 13th. They said that they engaged Tudor Pickering Holt and Perella Weinberg as financial advisors and Sidley Austin as uh, their, their legal advisors. Um, what the big news uh, beyond that was when the company filed their K, they issued a going concern um, warning or potential for, uh, or, sorry, they issued a going concern warning. Um, they have an upcoming, uh, they had an upcoming maturity in April, but uh, pushed it out to May 31st on the company's revolver. And they also said that they actually waived um, the requirement to um, have a going concern free filing with their uh, their term loan and that also takes them to to May 31st. Um, Reorg learned later that unsecured note holders are working with Houlihan Loki and Davis Polk. Um, and in addition, GSO Capital, which is a second lien holder of the second lien term loan, is working with PJT partners uh, as financial advisors and Latham and Watkins as as legal advisor. So that's another name that we're going to be um, keeping an eye on in terms of total capital structure. They have um, $1.35 billion in total debt. $541 million of that uh, is the revolver and another $339 million of that is the term loan company um, had as of uh, the end of the year, 34 million in liquidity. So something definitely people uh, people are watching. In total, uh, EBITDA um, actually isn't isn't that terrible, uh, 277 million um, in, in EBITDA. So there's some, um, some activity here, some, um, some questions that we've gotten given where they're located and, uh, and uh, where you're creating. These, uh, this company on an EBITDA basis. So next up, Jones Energy. Uh, that's one that we've spoken about a number of times here at Herat Reorg. Uh, company has operations in the Merge. They also have operations in the Western Anadarko Basin. So what do they say? In the fourth quarter, they reported EBITDA fell uh, by almost 50% uh, to 17 million from 38 million uh, the, the year before. Um, for the full year, the company generated 94 million in EBITDAX and spent 245 million in CapEx. And uh, um, in their earnings announcement, they said that they would they continue to explore strategic alternatives and debt reduction initiatives and uh, actually doubled down on that statement in, the, uh, in their earnings call. 
uh, where CEO Carl Geisler said that the company will, quote, require a significant restructuring of its balance sheet. And um, we learned a little bit more uh, later on when the company filed its 10K, um, they used even harsher language uh, and said, quote, as a result of extremely challenging current market conditions and our significant indebtedness, we believe we will require a significant restructuring of our balance sheet within the next 12 months in order to continue as a going concern in, uh, in the near term. And then it continues on saying that uh, that's based on um, current uh, their current belief of, of energy prices. Um, so this this is one um, that uh, we continue to follow. Company um, later had a coupon payment uh, due, which they skipped. Uh, it was for twenty seven point seven million uh, that was due on uh, March fifteenth. Uh, so the company then said that they entered uh, the 30-day uh, grace period. It was uh, actually on um, both uh, first lien um, notes and uh, also um, unsecured notes, both um, both of which are nine and a quarter uh, coupon. The first lien's for four hundred and fifty million, and uh, the unsecure was for one hundred and fifty million. So company right now um, is in a 30-day grace period as of uh, as of March fifteenth. Overall capital structure um, is uh, a little over a billion, uh, aside from that 450 of first lien and the 150 of of nine and a quarter unsecured uh, due 2023. They also have six and three quarter, a little over 400 million of it due uh, in 2022. Uh, so that's one, um, another one that we'll, uh, we'll continue to follow. Should hear some news on them uh, shortly. Total liquidity uh, also as of the end of the year was just um, 83, uh, 83 million. So that, that's one, um, like I said, where we could hear some, uh, some restructuring news on soon. Last, and I'm going to actually bring Peter in uh, on this one to help me out uh, discussing from the Covenant side is EP Energy. That's one that's definitely made some news recently, gotten a lot of questions on. Uh, EP is an Apollo-owned energy company. They have operations in the Permian, the Eagleford, and Northeast Utah, which they call the Altamont, uh, in terms of splitting out uh, by production. Uh, total volumes in 2018, a third was from the Permian, 46% was from the Eagleford, and the remaining 21% uh, was in um, the Altamont so um, what does the company what does the company look like? Uh, you have four point four billion dollars in total debt as of December thirty uh, first, um, and that's actually uh, pro forma for some um, some some pay downs um, that they that they made uh, subsequent to year end. Uh, the company has. A mix of uh, secured debt and unsecured debt, actually uh, an, a number of liens. Uh, so I'll just go through this uh, quickly. 100 million uh, drawn revolver. Um, this is as of December uh, uh, 31st. They have a billion dollar one and eighth lien, 500 million and one and a quarter lien, two billion dollars and one and a half liens, uh, and then a very uh, smidgen of a second lien term loan. And then the rest is in uh, unsecured notes of varying maturities. What's sort of interesting here is that the unsecured notes actually mature ahead of uh, the secure notes. So following a $50 million pay down subsequent to December 31st, 
first um, at it's basically an open market purchase. Uh, company has 182 million in unsecured notes due in uh, 2020. And uh, then they have 600 million in total unsecureds that were due in 2022 and, um, and 2023. Company generated 830 million in EBITDA last year, but burned over uh, 200 million in um, in free cash flow after capex after after interest there's a number of things that that are coming up over here which is given um, concern one of which uh, you know we've spoken about um, for a while and is widely known they have a maintenance leverage covenant which switches from a three and a half a three three x first lien ratio which they're in compliance of today to beginning with the, the second quarter of this year it switches to a four and a half total leverage ratio and that's under the revolver um, beginning with the the second quarter and that's something that's the total leverage ratio and that is something that they are not in they would not be in compliance um, today so that's one thing that has uh, some people worried uh, but the other uh, thing is in the, the company's 10k they didn't actually issue a going concern warning in the K itself, or their auditors didn't. But what they said is that um, because they um, they likely would not have um, liquidity, uh, they said to pay their May 2020 unsecured maturity of 182 million. That the company um, expects going concern language in their um, ten in their next 10K. So that would be for the for the first quarter, which definitely seems like caught um, a lot of people uh, off guard. So just a couple of things on the operations before we bring Peter in. Company took a $1.1 billion impairment charge related to its Permian assets in the quarter. Uh, they said, quote, as a result of significant reduction in Permian activity in a five-year plan as a result of the downturn in oil prices since Q3 2018 and a shift toward basic pricing advantage and more lucrative Eagleford and Northeastern Utah uh, project. So, uh, you know, as a reminder, uh, the company is Permian, um, Eagleford, and Northeastern Utah, but um, they took that impairment charge in, um, in the Permian. And they did give first quarter results, said that um, 0% of their drilling budget would be devoted to, um, to the Permian. Company also does, uh, you know, aside from being owned by Apollo and, um, or a consortium um, run by, um, they were bought by a consortium uh, run by Apollo and still owned by that, even though they do have um, some, public, um, some public shares. They're also in a JV with Apollo 2, a drilling um, venture, terms of which are Apollo contributes 60% of capital expenditures, 50-50 um, uh, where the operations would be split until Apollo achieves 12% IRR, and then the split reverts to 15% of um, a profit to Apollo and 85% to EP Energy. The JV, the total amount is $450 million. It was signed in 2017. They, have, uh, they spent half of it in the, um, in the Permian, and then in um, last year, in May of last year, they said that they would move to the Eagleford where, for the second part. So consistent also with uh, the rest of the company's drilling plans where they're moving a lot of it, the focus from the Permian to the Eagleford. 
So, Peter, uh, you know, turning to you, uh, I know you've obviously dug through all of these uh, these these documents that the company has, the indentures, the credit agreements, and whatnot. So, what have you learned? Um, yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so, what I've learned is that. Um EP Energy has quite a complicated capital structure. Um, it has a number of series of, it has one in 1.125 lien notes, one and a quarter lien notes, one and a half lien notes, unsecured notes, and an ABL. Um, now, under the ABL, which is the only uh, first lien debt that the company is allowed to incur, um, the company has about $630 million of commitments under the, under the ABL. Uh, $440 million of current capacity, given $190 million of the revolver has been drawn. And the, the RBL also permits $393 million of additional junior lien debt, plus $500 million more if, um, if the borrowing base is reduced. Um, now, the notes uh, permit a lot more, but given the RBL is still in effect, that is a limiting factor. Um, in respect of uh, restricted payment capacity, the company's recent 1.125 lien notes uh, place a cap on unrestricted subsidiary transfers, and it limits such amounts to about $500 million. Uh, without that cap, the rest of the notes permit about $750 million of transfers. Great. So knowing all of this, what then can the company do? Uh, you know, both, you know, what do you think? What have you heard potentially from subscribers knowing that, the big hurdle here is their 2020 unsecured note maturity. And, and actually, it, you know, it's interesting is when you look at the rest of the unsecured uh, maturities here, they all mature ahead of um, ahead of the secured. So you could say, you know, not only what are they, what's their plans for the 2020 unsecured notes, but maybe what are their plans for 2022, 2023 notes? Uh, you know, given what you know, wh what are some options the company has? Um, yeah, well, you know, uh, Mark, you know, you and I had been talking uh, earlier this week or last week, I forget which, but, um, you know, we were kind of discussing how if the company got rid of the, uh, the RBL, it actually would give the company a significantly larger amount of flexibility. And, you know, I wrote about that and surprisingly um, got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of, uh, a lot of subscribers seem to kind of think that that is a realistic option. So um, let me just kind of go through that quickly. So as I said, with the RBL in place, the company has about $440 million of additional first lien capacity under the RBL, plus at most $893 million of additional junior lien capacity. So it's somewhat limited. Now, if you got rid of the ABL, um, assuming they replaced it, let's say with um, you know uh, with uh, five hundred or five hundred to a billion dollars of you know first lien notes, first lien debt, let's say uh, you know it could be uh, given to it, it would open up about another billion dollars of additional secured capacity. Now, that billion dollars of secured capacity is limited by the unsecured notes. If the company were to refinance the unsecured notes and kind of get those limitations out of the way, the company's next most restrictive document is its one and a half lien notes, which would open up about $3.75 billion of additional capacity. So I think the company's kind of clearest path, at least to getting more flexibility, would be getting rid of its RBL. You go from about 800 million of junior lien debt capacity to anywhere as high as 3.75 billion of additional junior lien capacity. 
So it's a significant difference, and it obviously provides, you know, a lot of flexibility to take out all the unsecureds, uh, refinance them with, with some kind of senior lien debt. Uh, now, one of the other things that the company can do is it could transfer some assets to an unrestricted subsidiary and kind of use those assets at the unsub to, in some kind of exchange transaction. Uh, as I mentioned, they have $500 million of capacity, um, and if they got rid of the 1.125 lien notes, they would open up $250 million of additional capacity. However, given the uh, 1.125 lien notes were recently issued, uh, the company would have to pay a make-hold premium through May 15, 2021, and would have to pay some form of a call premium until May 15, 2024. However, um, you know, while it would be a little more expensive to get rid of those notes, um, the upside with uh, those notes not in place, uh, you know, arguably is a little higher. So the company, you know, has some kind of creative ways to open up flexibility, either uh, in respect of its debt capacity or uh, in respect of its ability to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Great. Thanks. Now, of course, Peter, you're talking about what's allowed under the, the documents. Um, you know, of, of course, the market will determine what it's willing to bear in terms of providing the company with with additional capital or going along with any of these these transactions and you know these are all just uh, hypothetical um, and you know we're not privy to any um, any specific negotiations if there are any um, going on so I, I, I appreciate that uh, that Peter thank you Nick thank you too and thank you to our audience Connor back to you thanks guys. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly podcast. As always, you can find all podcasts on our site's media page, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. This has been the Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelton.